Give ear to God's word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass, uh, the Bible says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, I, I um, it's going to sound like there's some repetition if you were here last week, and I think that's okay. I think last week I mentioned um, that when I first saw that we were coming to this passage, um, it, there's so much going on in this passage, so much important uh, truth for us to, to be, to be uh, learning here that I kind of didn't know where to start. And even though we already preached, uh, saw, you know, one one sermon on this text, I still kind of feel the same way. I'm still not sure where to start and where to end. Uh, there's so much uh, to look at in our text. And I also think I mentioned last Sunday that this text, uh, and this is why it's one of those ones where you don't know where to start or where to end. It's really one of the most crucial and most foundational passages in all of the Bible. And that is the case not just for ministry, uh, which is certainly why Paul brings it up. Remember, Paul's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, his own, his own child in the faith, so to speak, as he calls him to instruct him on how to exercise and carry out his ministry. But it's also foundational and crucial for all of, of the Christian faith and life. Every single Christian, every believer in Christ, uh, this passage has a lot uh, that is relevant for each one of us in how we will believe and how we will live uh, the Christian life. Um, I believe I said last week, your view of the Bible, your view of Scripture, in many ways, determines what you will believe and how you will live. Your view of Scripture determines everything about your faith and life. And that's true even if you don't believe in the Bible. If you believe the Bible is just some collection of human writings that, you know, maybe has some good stuff here and there that you can pick and choose, well, that you're betraying what your view of the Bible is when you treat it that way. And when you do treat it that way, what will you do? You'll, you will feel free to pick and choose the things that you like, the things that you prefer, the things that you agree with. And you'll say, well, I agree with that, so I'll believe that. And other parts that might make you uncomfortable, might go against the grain of how you naturally think and believe and live. If that's how you look at the Bible, you will say to yourself, well, that part I'm not so sure about. I'm going to feel free, even if we don't say these words, I'm going to feel free to disregard it. That happens all the time. It happens all the time. Um, and so if you, whether you believe the Bible or not, your view of the Bible will determine everything about your faith. And your life. Now, it's it's no coincidence that Paul doesn't just say that the scriptures are breathed out by God, which he does say in verse 16. He doesn't just say that they're inspired, although they are. But because of that, what else does he say? Because it's breathed out by God, it is also profitable or useful for many things regarding our faith and life as believers in Christ. The fact that God's word the scriptures are the inspired word of God, that fact brings along with it a number of other necessary implications, doesn't it? When you, once you say the Bible is the inspired word of God, there's a lot of things that go along with that. If it's the word of God, it must be inerrant. There is no error in God's word. 
It must be infallible. In other words, it will not lead you astray. You know, very often the Bible tells us to do things that some of us, maybe all of us at one time or another, we, we, we find ourselves kind of at the, at the ledge and going, I don't know if I can take the next step of faith. I know the Bible says to do this, but what if X, Y, and Z? The Bible is infallible. It will not let you down if you follow Christ's commands sincerely. The Bible is authoritative. That almost goes without saying, although I think sometimes we have to say it because we don't think about it and put those two things together. If the, if the scriptures are the word of God himself, then they hold authority. Ultimate authority. They are our standard, our only rule for faith and practice. Uh, it, his, the word, the Bible itself says that not a word of God falls to the ground. Why is that? Because it's God's word. And last but not least, and I'm sure there's more we could say, the Bible, because it's inspired and it's the word of God, it's also sufficient. God has given us what we need for faith and life, for faith and godliness in his scriptures. There's nothing missing from God's word that you and I need to grow in the faith and to grow in godliness. And, and as Paul says, to grow in such a way in grace to be equipped for every good work that God would have you do. God didn't forget to include things. And likewise, everything in scripture, there are things that you might read and go, why do I need to know that? Maybe there's a lot of things that you think that about. It's there for a reason. God, there's no filler. In the, it's a big book, but it's not that big. There's no filler in God's word. It is all sufficient for the things that God has sent it for us to do. Now, Paul goes to great lengths here in our text, this short passage. Um, he goes to, to, to great lengths to impress upon you and me that these truths must have a direct bearing on our lives. They must have a direct bearing on the work of the minister of the gospel. Remember, he's telling this, these things to Timothy first. And it's because of these truths that we're looking at this morning, uh, these truths that about all of Scripture, it's because all Scripture is breathed out by God that Timothy, a couple verses later, tells him to do what? Preach the word. If the word wasn't inspired, Paul would have no reason to tell Timothy to do that. It's because the, the Scriptures are breathed out by God that he tells Timothy, and doesn't just tell him, notice the wording, I charge you. I charge you before God and Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead to what? To preach the word. That is how solemn and important the preaching of scripture is uh, for the life and health of the church. We are to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Those are, you could say, those are the, the different aspects of what involves what is involved in preaching? It, it sometimes involves reproving or rebuking. Sometimes it involves exhorting and then obviously complete patience and teaching. So I'd like to look at a few things, at least this morning, Lord willing. And the first of those is just taking my, my heading from the text. All scripture is breathed out by God. The first thing we have to see in our text, all scripture, the whole Bible is breathed out by God. Verse 16 what does that mean? I think we mentioned this last week. At, if you boil it all down, it means it's, that the scripture, all of it, is what? It is God's word. Who is the speaker, ultimately, of scripture when you read the Bible? 
It's not Paul. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I'll say Paul says or Paul writes. Ultimately, who is the one saying what you're reading in the scriptures? God. It is God breathed. It's not Paul breathed. It's God breathed. It is the word of God. It's a vivid picture, the phrase that Paul uses there. It's a, it's a vivid picture that, that shows that God is the one doing the speaking. And so what scripture says, God says. What God says, the scripture says. Now, what does that look like? How does God do that? How does God give us the Bible? How does God reveal himself to us in his word? Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says the following. It gives us a hint of the way God works in the giving of Scripture. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, here it is, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Who did the speaking? Well, in the human, in the human aspect of things, it was the prophet. Isaiah said what Isaiah said. But God spoke what? By or through the prophets. But in these last days, he says, he, that is God, has spoken to us in his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So you could say in the Old Testament, God spoke in all kinds of different ways, through or by his prophets. In the New Testament, ultimately, he spoke by his son. And Hebrews, of course, is saying this is the ultimate end of God's revelation. There's no next thing other than the return of Christ. Uh, That is a good description of what we're considering together in our text this morning. God did the speaking, and how did he do that? He did so by or through the human prophets. And so the scriptures that we have this morning here in the Bible are God's words spoken by the prophets and apostles, even by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not ultimately the prophets' words themselves, but they are the words of of God himself. Acts chapter 4 verse 25 there it says the same kind of thing it says that God himself spoke the words of Psalm 2. Remember Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing all of those things and he who sits in the heavens laughs. He says that God himself in Acts 4:25 God spoke the words of Psalm 2 what? Through the mouth of our father David And how did he say it? It says that what he said, what David said in Psalm 2 was said, quote, by the Holy Spirit. God spoke through the mouth of his of our father, David, by the Holy Spirit, working in and speaking through David. Mark, chapter 12, verse 36, the Lord Jesus himself says that the words of Psalm 110, one. Remember, Pastor Gary years ago said it's God's favorite Bible verse. It's the most quoted verse. From the Old Testament in the New Testament, above any other verse, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says that those words were spoken by David in or by the Holy Spirit. So David wrote the words, David said the words, but whose words are they? God's. God the Holy Spirit worked that in and spoke by David what we have in Psalm 110. Inspiration, uh, the giving of scripture, is not necessarily a form of dictation. There are many people that think it was that kind of a thing. Sometimes they they picture the apostles going into some kind of a trance-like state. The Bible doesn't show anything like that. The prophets were given visions. The apostle John was given visions and were told what to write. Sometimes God told his prophets exactly what to say, didn't he? 
Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, where God is sending Moses to Pharaoh, and he says this, And you, Moses, you shall say to him, and he tells him the words to say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And that's, that's really the job of a prophet or an apostle, isn't it? Here's what God says to you. That is actually a description of what preaching is supposed to be in our day. Not new revelation. God does not inspire me to say anything. I speak only what God has said in his word. That is, But that is basically saying, thus saith the Lord, isn't it? That's what it's supposed to be. If it's not, it's not preaching. It's something else, something else entirely. You might remember every first Sunday we read one of the two texts of the Ten Commandments. Usually it's Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. But the very first verse in Exodus 20 says something very noteworthy. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, and then he says, I'm the Lord your God who you know, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, gives the Ten Commandments. Who verbally, in this case, spoke the Ten Commandments for the people to hear it? God did. It wasn't Moses sitting there with a megaphone, you know, listening and, 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 and re- relating it to the people. It was God saying it. And, you know, that, that, among other things, all of Scripture is God's word is what our text says. But when God himself is the one who says it directly, it should make us sit up and pay attention. God's commandments, God's law is very, very important. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 gives us kind of a description, if you could say that, of the process of inspiration, as close to a description as you might find in the scriptures, there is an element of mystery to these things, obviously, but it says, Second Peter 1, verses 20 to 21, Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Here it is. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means the scriptures that we were reading, Paul wrote them or, had, you know, or dictated them to someone who wrote for him, that kind of a thing sometimes. And so in one sense, they're, God, they're, they're Paul's words. But ultimately, they're not. The things that Paul write that are that are recorded for us in Scripture, the things that Peter or John or, or Moses or whoever, David wrote, uh, they, it was not produced by their will. They are not the, the human authors of the Bible are not the ultimate source of what we have in our Bibles. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing Peter does is tell us what the Bible is not, what the scriptures are not. They are not the product of private interpretation or the will of man. They come not from man, but from God. Inspiration was men speaking or writing from God as the Holy Spirit himself carried them along to do so. So it's kind of like a boat. That's the picture that Peter uses, right? Like a, like a sailboat being carried along with the wind in its sails, even so the scriptures were written by men as the Holy Spirit powerfully and sovereignly moved their hearts, minds, and pens to say exactly what God would have them say, even down to the words themselves. You know, Jesus Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room. 
You know, many people like to say, and a lot of liberals like to say, well, the, they give lip service. The Bible's the word of God, kind of. Parts of it are, parts of it aren't. They don't give you the decoder ring to figure out exactly which parts are and aren't. They apparently leave that to your own whim, to your own preferences. Whatever parts you don't like, maybe you disregard them. Is that how we are to approach God's word? No, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not a jot or a tittle, not the smallest mark of a pen will pass away from the word of God until it's all fulfilled. Jesus, even at some point in Scripture, he, he refers to Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush passage. Remember when he talked about being God is not the God of the dead, but of the living? He actually refers down to the, the, the tense of a verb. Like not just one word, but the tense of the verb of, of what he's referring to when, when God talked to Moses at the burning bush, what did he say? Jesus says, I'm paraphrasing here, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did he say? I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what does Jesus say? Therefore, the resurrection is a real thing. The Bible really teaches it. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't still dead. They're with the Lord even now. There is life after this life. And Jesus based that in part, or demonstrated it in part, on the tense of a verb in Exodus chapter 3. And what he says, what he says goes. Well, the second thing that follows from the first, if all scripture is breathed out by God and is God's word, all scripture then is to be received as the word of God, isn't it? There's an application for us. All scripture, because it's God's word, is to be received as the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, there Paul paints a, a picture of what our posture, our attitude ought to be toward the scriptures. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you hear that? Paul is self-consciously telling them that what he preached to them was, was God's word. And it probably doesn't just mean he was quoting the Old Testament. He was aware of his office as an apostle, but he says, uh, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, here it is, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what as, or sorry, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And notice who he thanks for that. He doesn't say, I thank you Thessalonians, because you're apparently smarter than those other people that we talked and preached to. Because you received the word of God as the word of God, not the word of men. He thanks God for it. Why? Because God did that. Even our reception, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, even your faith is the work of God's grace of his Holy Spirit working in you. On your own, on my own, none of us would receive the word of God as the word of God. The natural man does no such thing. It's only a work of God by his grace and his Holy Spirit that enables and makes us receive it, recognize it for one as the word of God, and receive it as such and not as the word of men alone. When you, when you read your Bible, when you hear the word of God being clearly and faithfully taught and preached, you should rejoice in it. I hope that you do. You should receive it and accept it, not as man's word, but as what it really is, as he says, the word of God. And if it's the word of God, it bears the authority of God himself. It's not left for us to take or leave it. 
It's not left for us to argue against it or kick against the goad, so to speak, by not complying with it. It is our only rule or standard for faith and practice. What does that mean? It is the standard for what we believe. Which means if I, if I think one way or believe a certain way and I find that the Bible contradicts me, who or what has to change? Not the Bible. I don't twist the scriptures to suit me, and neither should you. We conform ourselves to the scriptures teaching in what we believe and in what we do, how we live. We should imitate the example of, of the Bereans found in Acts 17. This is a common passage we look at, but it, it, it bears repeating. Acts 17, verses 11 to 12, he says, uh, Now these Jews, the ones in Berea, these Jews were more noble or more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, we just read a text where Paul said he, he thanked God for the way the people received the word of God, but some of them did not, right? They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Here it is. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When they were told the word of God was going to be taught and preached, what did they do? They received it with all eagerness. And then what did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They when Paul preached, they said, is this what God's word says? And they checked the apostle Paul and his teaching and preaching by what? By the scriptures to make sure that what he was saying to them was, was true. And most of that was no doubt about Jesus Christ being the fulfillment in his death and resurrection of all the things in the Old Testament. And what happened because of that? What did God do in and through that reception of God's word by the Bereans? It says the next verse, verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed, and not, and with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. People of all walks of life, people of all ethnicities, Greek or Jew, people that were rich or poor, of high standing or low, many of them believed. Why? Because Paul preached scripture. They welcomed the scripture eagerly. They received it, and they even went back and checked on what he was saying to confirm the truth of what he had said by scripture. So I'll ask this morning, are we, are we eager to receive, as the Bereans were, the teaching and preaching of the word of God? Not always, right, if we're honest. We, we do our thing, we show up, right? Do we have to be dragged to church or Bible study? Sometimes we do. You know, the flesh is willing, but the, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Everybody, one of us, every single one of us that's ever read that verse has had to go, yeah, sometimes that's how I feel. The Spirit's willing. I know what I'm supposed to do, you know, but the flesh is often weak. Do our Bibles sit there on the shelf gathering dust? Or do we show that we believe the scriptures to be the very word of God by our diligence in attending upon these things? How many more in our day seem attracted to a church by all the wrong things? You know, I, I, I won't mention anything in specific, but um, I always find it interesting to look at the ads. I know nobody reads the paper anymore, but to look at the advertisements that churches, the, the things they hang their hat on to draw people to them. It's almost never the word of God. It, it's almost anything but the word of God. It's really sad. They, they, they do what they think will get people's attention and make them want 
want to come. How many of them have a a concert-like atmosphere? Or a warm, fuzzy, motivational speech, which in many ways astutely avoids the offense of the gospel altogether. Because nobody wants to hear that. The preaching of God's law is avoided like the plague. The call to repentance unto life is avoided at all costs. Itching ears abound. It's easy to fill a church with itching ears. Just don't use the scriptures. I can remember years ago in in Bible college, they had us read some books on church growth. The church growth movement has always been a big thing. Every pastor that has a church wants to know how to make his church bigger. And I, I would say that even the phrase church growth, we know what we mean by it, but it's wrongheaded from the start. Our job isn't to grow the church. God grows the church and adds to it. Our job is to, is to share the gospel, to preach the gospel that God might save sinners. And he, by his grace, adds them to the church when he does so. But the growth of the church isn't the point. It's God's church to begin with. But I can remember things in some of these books emphasizing basically one thing and de-emphasizing other things. What do you think it said about this, the preaching? Better keep it keep it short. Keep it relevant. Keep it whatever you want to say. What do you think they said about prayer in public worship? You better keep that to a minimum. Is that what the church did in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' doctrine, uh, to the fellowship, to the prayers. That's talking about prayer in gathered worship and the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves. So they were like, they didn't know why they were doing it, but God worked it in. They, they hung their hat on those things. If the early church was going to have an ad in the paper in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Times or whatever it would have been back then, if they had a paper back then, they didn't. Their ad would have been the doctrine of the apostles, the fellowship of the saints, prayer, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now show up, everybody. You know, that, that, that's how they would have advertised the church. Where are the crowds of people who eagerly flock to hear the faithful teaching and preaching of the gospel? I think our generation has been swindled by entertainment. In the place of worship, we are feeding on garbage while the feast of God's word goes unheeded. We need God to bring revival. We can't do it on our own. May he stir us up in his church to have more of a hunger for God's word. I believe the truths that Paul mentions in our text even imply to some extent, at least, the kind of preaching and teaching that our churches should, should, be, should, should be known by. I believe these things imply that in some sense and even demand a form of preaching that in its most basic form, and I'll use a word and try to explain it, I believe these things teach that the preaching of God's church is to be mainly expository in nature. Now, what do I mean by that? That's a big $10 preaching word. What is exposition? Exposition is the kind of preaching of the ministry of the word in which the minister or whoever's teaching proclaims, explains, and applies the scriptures to the hearers. Proclaiming it, reading it, proclaiming God's word, explaining what it means, and then applying it. That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? It doesn't sound very entertaining. It doesn't sound like, you know, and what, what that doesn't mean, 
that doesn't mean that every little bit of background study that your pastor does in his office has to be laid out before the congregation. That would make a long sermon, uh, frankly. Uh, it, what it does mean is that the text of Scripture that we're looking at must be clearly explained. And why is that? Because in any faithful biblical sermon, there's got to be some application. But if you don't know that the application is actually based on the text you're looking at, in other words, it's not actually being put upon you by God himself, you'll question whether or not you should even do it. You might be saying to yourself, is this the pastor's idea? Is this, is this his, basically his little thing and I'm supposed to go along with it? Or is God saying to do it? If you don't show clearly what the text says and what it means, you can't possibly show people and demonstrate uh, why it is to be applied the way that it is to be applied. You know, without this, the Bereans would have been left scratching their heads as to what they were to do, if, whether or not they're hearing what they were hearing from Paul was from God or not. To not preach that way in some ways cuts the legs out from any application that might be pressed upon the hearers by the minister, doesn't it? Because you don't know. You won't be sure. Is this really what it says? Is this really what it implies, the thing the pastor or the preacher is saying? If you aren't sure that God is calling you to do what the preacher says that God is calling you to do, how will God's people be equipped to trust God at his word and step out and obey in faith? Short answer is you won't, unless you are very, very exceptional. I sincerely hope that you will settle for nothing less than the clear, faithful exposition of Scripture. I hope that's what you expect every Lord's Day. I hope that you will demand such ministry from your pastors and teachers and elders. Pray that God might raise up more such men in the church today. We need these things. We need more people, more men of God who preach the, the, the Bible plainly, explain it, and apply it. Well, the last thing and not least, and there's still more in our text we could go into, but all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is to be received as the word of God. And lastly, but not, you, not, not least, Paul even says it, all scripture is therefore what? It's useful or profitable for many things in many ways. You know, the old Puritans, uh, if you ever get a chance to read some of the Puritans, they have uh, Banner of Truth has those Puritan paperbacks where they kind of edit things down for people like me that can't read the 500-page you know, volume. They, they kind of boil it down to, to the part that makes it more readable. But the Puritans had a way of, of organizing their teaching and their preaching where they would have exposition, so to speak, followed by a section they would sometimes just call uses. In other words, application. Here's what you should do in light of what we just said. Well, the scripture itself is very useful, and Paul uh, tells us that much in our text. I don't know if this is this text is where the Puritans got the idea, but maybe it was. And to say that the Bible is useful is to say that the Bible is sufficient for what God has intended for it to do. Look again at verses 16 and 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, the word therefore is not there, but I think it's in the blank space between the words in some ways. I'm not adding scripture. Uh, it's breathed out by God and what? Profitable. Or useful, profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is useful because all scripture is God breathed or inspired. Hebrews 4, chapter 12, I think we looked at this recently also. It says that 
because the Bible is the word of God, it says it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The scriptures are living and active. No other book can really be called living. In fact, in our day, many documents uh, people say are living, breathing documents. They say that because they want to change them. If you're, I won't get too far into politics here, but and many treat our Constitution and Bill of Rights that way. They say, oh, it's a living document. But what do they mean when they say that? They mean that it's shiftable. It's malleable. They can change it to make it say what they want it to say. They use it like a wax nose or like a puppet. And they actually undo and reverse what they say in many cases by what they do. The Bible is a living book because it's the, it's the word of God. It's also active. Think about that. The Bible, the word of God, the scriptures, is they are active. What does that mean? It means they do. The Bible does things. Now, I, I've, I've left my Bible there on my desk and I've watched it like a hawk. I've never seen it get up and do anything. I've never seen it get up and make my coffee or anything, but it, it's active. It does things. God does things through it. Isaiah 55, this is actually the text I commonly leave open in the, the, the pulpit Bible here in front of me. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, it says this, and we're supposed to get rain today, so maybe this will remind you of it next time. Isaiah says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Here it is. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says. It shall not return to me empty or void, uh, but it shall accomplish, it shall do, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God sends his word forth to accomplish things, to do things. And that shouldn't surprise us if we think about it, right? When you read the book of Genesis, it's like a big hint. When you read the creation account, how did God create? And God said, let there be light. And then what does it say? And there was light. And we read this morning from the psalm, uh, Psalm 148, when he created the stars by his word, it used the word command. God commanded these things to be by his word, and boom, there they were. They went from non-existence to existing at the word of God. God's word always does things. It accomplishes always the thing that he purposes for it to do and always succeeds in the thing for which he sends it. Now, the word of God accomplishes things always. Remember verse 15 we looked at last Sunday. It says that the scriptures are quote, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel, which is only found in the word of God, Paul says in Romans 1.16, is what? The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God. It does things. You know, there's a saying, I don't know where it comes from, but it's it's been, or maybe you've heard this before. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You know, that's the word of God. To some, it's the word of life. It calls them from death to life. It opens the eyes of the blind by the, by the work of his Holy Spirit, calls them out of the kingdom of darkness and translates them into the kingdom of God's light in Jesus Christ. 
Others, they hear the gospel and reject it, and it hardens them. And in some ways, you could even say, according to Romans 9, it can be a judicial hardening by God for that rejection. But either way, it accomplishes things by God's grace and by God's power. What else is it useful or profitable for? Paul mentions a few things. I don't think he means this to be an exhaustive list. He says it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There's no doubt more than that that it's useful to, but it, uh, for. But in some ways, what is Paul saying? He's saying the Bible, the scriptures, all of them, not just part of them, and the preaching of them uh, is in some ways it's the basic essentials that you and I need as believers in Christ to grow in the faith and grow in godliness. It's the Bible, more of it, that we need uh, for these things. The, the scripture is useful for teaching. That word can also be rendered doctrine. Nobody likes doctrine, right? We, we always say that people say doctrine divides. Well, yeah, it does. And in some ways it's supposed to. But you need, as a believer, you need doctrine. Do you know if you're a believer in Christ, you need to be taught the doctrines of God's word in order to grow properly as a believer and be equipped for what God would have you to do. The duties that God calls you to, which vary from Christian to Christian in many ways, the, the various duties that God calls you to are informed, shaped, and fueled by the doctrines of the gospel. Not just the beginning of the Christian life either, all through your Christian life. You never stop needing to hear the gospel proclaimed and applied. Think about some of the doctrines that the scripture teaches so repeatedly. The doctrine of Christ crucified and resurrected. The doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen these just in a few passages already this morning. The doctrine of atonement or propitiation of God's wrath by the death of Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The doctrine of God's sovereign grace and mercy in election. These things are found, among others, all through the scripture from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. And God put all those doctrines in his word for a good reason. They are all needful for you and I, or God would not have entrusted them to us. He would not have given them to us in his word unless they were needful for us. There's a, a part in, this isn't a quote, but it just comes to mind. There is a, a section in John Calvin's Institutes where he mentions, I believe it was, the doctrine of election in particular. And that wasn't the only thing he ever talked about, far from it. In fact, Paul, uh, Paul Calvin was called by some the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He focused on the Holy Spirit more than maybe anything else in some ways, and nobody ever seems to talk about that. They just think he talked about election over and over again. But what did he say about the teaching of election? He said, for those who shy away from it, from the pastors and ministers who say, well, I better not teach on that, that's going to make some people uncomfortable. What does he say? He says, if you do that, you're implying that God put something harmful in his word. You're saying, God, maybe you should have thought twice about this. This is going to upset some people. As if God doesn't know what he's doing. As if God would put something harmful in his word rather than something useful and actually quite needful. All those things are needful for us, among other things, that for us to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. How about reproof or correction? We might naturally resist those things and resent them. No one, no one, if you're honest, none of us like to be corrected. None of us like to be rebuked or refuted. 
And, you know, Rob mentioned he read this morning from Proverbs 27, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. We don't think that way naturally. Not when we're on the receiving end, right? But the scripture says that's what the way it is. Is God himself any less our friend when he rebukes or wounds us to turn us from error and sin? When you consider that error and sin bring nothing but harm and misery to our lives. Is God any less our friend when he rebukes us in his word or wounds us in some ways to turn us from error and turn us from sin? These things are needful for you and me to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. They are needful in order that we might be properly trained, to use Paul's words, trained in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. All those things are things that God uses in his word and the preaching of it to make us ready for every good work that he would call us to do. And so I'll ask again, do you, if you're a believer this morning, and I, I hope that you all are, do you want to be used by God? That, that thought crossed your mind. I, I just want to be useful to God in my generation. Maybe you're not sure what that looks like. Maybe you're not sure what it is that God has called you to do in some ways just yet. But if you want to be used by God, then you must be trained in righteousness. Notice he doesn't say, not that it doesn't matter, he doesn't focus on skills. Skills are important in many in many walks of life, maybe in all walks of life. But the most needful thing is godliness or righteousness. That's what God uses more than anything else. Do you want to be complete or mature in the faith, able to do what God has called you to do in serving? And then you need the whole counsel of God taught, explained, and applied to your life, both in your own private study of God's word as well as on the Lord's Day in the church. This is true for pastors and elders like Timothy. It's why Paul uses the phrase man of God. But it's also true for you if you're a believer in Christ. They might these things in some ways... you. Could, Forgive me for saying it this way. They might be magnified in the life of a pastor or elder, but they're the same for every Christian. Every pastor or elder is a Christian first and foremost at the end of the day. And the same things that qualify a man to be an elder or pastor or deacon are the very same things that we are all, men and women alike, children alike, are are to seek after to grow in uh, in our lives. May God give each of us a growing hunger for his word. May the words of Psalm 1, verse 2 be true of us, that our delight, our delight is in the law of of the Lord and on God's law. Because we delight in it, what do we do? We meditate in it day and night. If we delight in God's word, we will meditate in it. We will spend time attending upon the ministry of it. And if that's the case, God will be going to be at work in our lives by his grace in such a way that as the psalmist goes on to say, We will be like trees planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's that's the promise of God's word when we take him at his word and spend time in it. God sanctifies us by his truth. His word, John 17, 17, is truth. May God be pleased to work uh, in each one of us that way by his Holy Spirit to the glory of Christ.
Amen.